Thanks for listening to Phantom History. Steve here, your Phantom History tour guide, reminding you that you can get access to the in-depth interviews I use to create this podcast by becoming a Patreon supporter of Phantom History. Please consider visiting phantomhistory.com and checking out the different levels of support. I appreciate it. Now, on to the episode. Sandra Barber has learned a lot from Elizabeth, the young girl she speaks to almost every day. Sandra says the two will talk about a number of things, ranging from the child's favorite games, which seems to include hide-and-seek, to details about the historic gates that once marked the entrance to the city of St. Augustine and still stand today. There's really no subject off-limits for the two friends. Sandra says she has even asked the child about her own death a death that likely occurred in the 1820s. You see, Elizabeth is the name many have given the spirit seen playing along the old entrance to the city, and it's a spirit which Sandra encounters almost nightly as a ghost tour guide in St. Augustine. I'm Steve Blanchard. Welcome to Phantom History. The city of St. Augustine, Florida was founded in 1565, To put that in context, this was 42 years before the English colonized Jamestown and 55 years before the Pilgrims landed at Plymouth Rock. It's a city with a history as violent and complicated as you'd expect for a settlement that changed hands from Spanish to English to American rule. Sandra Barber, who works as a tour guide in St. Augustine, knows the violent history of her city is directly tied to the countless hauntings of buildings, forts, and streets within the city on the east coast of Florida. It's the oldest city in the nation, and it's over 500 years old. So it would be hard-pressed not to find a place that was haunted in St. Augustine. And the fort's been there since the 1600s. So, you know, St. Augustine has, has gone through its ups and downs. The city was actually burned in 1740. So we only have five original buildings besides the fort that are actual buildings from the 1700s. Those buildings, all located within the Old City, as it's called, are historic landmarks that still house businesses and shops today. The most famous structure, the Old Schoolhouse, was built in 1760 and now stands as a museum. It just so happens that Sandra and her team of tour guides work out of a building that shares a courtyard with the historic building. And yes, they have had their fair share of paranormal encounters there. Sandra has a few theories as to why the building is so active. The schoolhouse is extremely haunted. There's a couple reasons, I think, that it's haunted. And one is because that schoolhouse was not only used as a schoolhouse, but in 1821, when we had yellow fever strike St. Augustine, and it killed one in every three people, We actually had Spanish sentries that were stationed at the city gates. They wouldn't let people in if they looked sick um, because they didn't want to spread yellow fever any further. But yellow fever wasn't spread by person to person. It was spread by mosquitoes. So it really didn't matter, you know, but the Spanish sentries that were actually stationed at the gates, they were housed in the old wooden So, that's where they would stay overnight and then they would open it back up and use it for the school during the day. 
So we think that the Spanish soldiers are actually still there haunting the schoolhouse. Plus we have the school teacher that is still there. And I actually have a picture of her that was locked up on one of the tour guides with books, carrying books um, to the front door of the schoolhouse. I think that, that a lot of that is residual. Sandra shared that within the old schoolhouse, items move by themselves and computers and electronics will turn on when nobody is there. And those hauntings aren't just confined within the small building. Sandra said photographs taken within the shared courtyard has produced strange streaks on photos, orbs, and apparitions. The gates Sandra mentioned when discussing the sentries that would sleep at the schoolhouse are nearby. And while the gates are just a partial wall now, they used to mark the entrance to the old city. That's where the city's most popular spirit likes to spend her time, according to Sandra. Elizabeth, she's one of our most famous ghosts in town. A lot of people have seen Elizabeth. They come in and ask us who the child actor is at the city gates, and we don't have any child actors in town. She has been known to play out there at night. She'll skip around at the city gates and wave at traffic as they're driving by. <laughs> so the police department's been called many times about a lost child at the city gate. And it turns out to be Elizabeth. Elizabeth, they say, is the gatekeeper's daughter. Now, the gatekeeper did have a daughter named Elizabeth. But she was 17 years old when she passed away. Now, this child that we see at the city gates is 12 when she passed away. So I knew it couldn't be the same child. But I was trying to figure out who this child was. And I actually went with one of our, my other guides and we went to the Historic Society. We actually came across an article about a little girl who passed away from yellow fever in 1821. Her parents couldn't afford the $4 to bury her. So they took her to the city gates and left her there, hoping the city would take her. According to Sanders research, authorities at the time did take that child and bury her in the Huguenot Cemetery which is located directly across from the city gates and was used as a Protestant burial ground between the years of 1821 and 1884. The city, for the most part, was Spanish Catholic at the time of this young girl's death, so a Protestant burial ground outside of the city walls was needed. This young girl is just one of 436 souls buried on the plot. When they buried her in the Huguenot, this little girl didn't have a name. And she was a Jane Doe. So the historians really felt bad because she didn't have a name and they gave her the name Elizabeth. And that's how it got confused with the gatekeeper's daughter. Sandra incorporates the story of Elizabeth, well, at least this Elizabeth, into her tours every night. She says she will make a point to try to communicate with the spirit of the young girl. And more often than not, her communication technique is successful, she says. When I'm out there, I always use the dowsing rods, and I always talk to Elizabeth at the And she answers me every single time. She seems to be very happy. She likes making new friends. She likes hanging out with people. I usually ask her, I say, Elizabeth, if you're here, can you cross the rods? And she'll cross them up, and I'll say, well, can you uncross them? And she'll open them wide open, 
And then I'll say, can you show me where you're at? And she'll show me, she'll move the rods and point to where she's at. It kind of freaks some of the people out on my tours because she's standing next to them, <laughs> you know, but it's a fun thing to do. And Elizabeth is so, so much fun to talk to. And I've actually gone out there and tried to get her real name because I know it's not Elizabeth, but I think she's been so used to being called Elizabeth. She just accepts that as her name. The Huguenot Cemetery, where Elizabeth lays, is one of two major cemeteries in St. Augustine. The other, called Talamado Cemetery, is on the land once occupied by a village of Native Americans. Those laid to rest here include members of that tribe, the Catholic friars who converted them to Christianity, Confederate soldiers, and black former enslaved people who escaped to Florida from the Carolinas. Like the Huguenot Cemetery, Talamado Cemetery was closed to additional burials in 1884, but that doesn't mean the cemetery doesn't have its fair share of spiritual activity. In fact, the cemetery has a host of spirits, with the most popular being one of a little boy. There's a little boy that's buried in the Talamado Cemetery. His name is James Patrick Morgan. And when he passed away, he actually fell out of the tree that's right there at the gate, and he broke his neck and passed away. Now, he was five years old when he passed away. And many, many people have actually seen James up in the tree. He sits in the tree. He likes to taunt people from the tree. I actually feel James when I'm there. Guests of Sandra's tours and others have caught a number of images on film showing what looks like a faded image of a young boy standing on a tree branch. Could these images be that of James Patrick Morgan? Many think so, especially considering the boy who died a tragic accidental death is not buried near any member of his own family, or anyone else for that matter. His grave sits in the front of the cemetery, and his parents actually purchased all the lots in the front to be buried with James. But when the cemetery closed in 1884, no one was allowed to be buried in there after that. So his parents were not actually buried in that cemetery with him. His parents and his seven brothers and sisters were actually buried in Texas. So they're not there. So James is actually there all by himself. And there's a little tombstone right out front. And you can see it when you walk up to the fence line. It's right there in the front. And it's the only one in that area. So he is out there all by himself. According to his tombstone, James died in 1877 at only five years old. Guests of Sandra's say they've seen him in the cemetery or in the tree, and one young guest even left a note on the young child's grave. Sandra admits that she has not physically seen James. However, she has seen something else in the Talamato Cemetery that appears much larger and much darker. My biggest Thing that I have actually seen at the Talamano Cemetery. I was walking up the fence line and I caught this black shadow out of the corner of my eye. And I couldn't figure out what it was. It was just tall and dark. And it went from the front of the cemetery to the back of the cemetery. And there's a mausoleum over there with a palm tree. And it was standing like right next to the palm tree. Because the cemeteries are closed, I knew that no one was supposed to be in there. 
And this was Halloween night that I actually saw this. So I thought somebody had actually climbed over the fence and was in the cemetery when they weren't supposed to be. It was Halloween night. I figured they were trying to trick somebody, but there was no one there. And we couldn't find any evidence that there was anybody in the cemetery. So I went ahead and went to finish my tour. And about 20 minutes after I had left, there was another group that came out and there was a woman on that tour and she actually saw the same thing I did, but she got a picture of it. It's like really tall. Honestly, I think it looks like an old priest. And that makes sense because there is an, a story about how the Talamato Native Americans that were there, that was originally their village. Um, and the priests would come in and try to convert them to Christianity. And when they wouldn't convert, they actually fought back and they killed a priest on the property. So I'm assuming that that's who I actually saw. Sandra says she has also caught a glimpse of a figure that looks almost like a skeleton near a large white mausoleum near the back of the Talamato Cemetery. But being the nation's oldest city, spirits aren't only confined to old buildings of the 1700s and the nearby graveyards. No, almost every building in the historic downtown area of St. Augustine has a resident spirit, and Sandra is familiar with most of those and plans to conduct her own investigations to determine their validity and source. I know the St. Francis Inn has talked to us about uh, Lily's room, and I believe the woman, Lily, that was there actually committed suicide. So I think that's part of the reason why it's so haunted. But like I said, the St. Augustine, it would be hard us not to find a place that's haunted. <laughs> you know, the Casa de Sueños is the old morgue, 1901. That was, is now the House of Dreams. You know, there's, there's just so many, so many stories in St. Augustine of all the places that are crazy haunted. One popular location to both tourists and locals is so enveloped in its haunted history that the bar owners would leave an empty table available for its resident ghost on its main floor. That ghost, it's believed, is the original proprietor of the establishment, George Coley, who was found drowned in his own bathtub not too long after he converted the two neighboring homes into a pub in 1870. While no one knows for sure who murdered the man, Sandra has her theories. Scarlett O'Hara's, which is a bar, that place is extremely haunted, especially on the second floor. The woman killed her husband in the bathtub. She found out that he was cheating on her with a younger woman, and she actually got him upstairs. She drew him a bath. He went into the bathtub. And she went in there and pushed him under and drowned him in the bathtub. That was originally a pub and that this guy owned that pub. As Sandra has said, St. Augustine is steeped in history and hauntings can be found on nearly every corner. Whether it's the St. Augustine Lighthouse, home to the spirits of three young girls, and many more, or the Castillo de San Marcos, a distinctive star-shaped fort built in 1672, 
Legends and hauntings are associated with almost every single structure in the historic city. Speaking of that fort, it was once the prison to Native Americans and European soldiers, and is a stop on every ghost tour in St. Augustine, and with good reason. Orbs, apparitions, strange sounds, and EVPs are regularly recorded there. Rumors constantly swirl around the fort. One story says that the severed head of Chief Osceola, a Native American chief who was once a prisoner there, can be seen hovering over the ancient building positioned right on the waterfront. Another, more feasible story is that the spirits of two imprisoned lovers whose remains were recovered long after their demise are responsible for at least some of the sightings at Castillo de San Marcos. That story, according to Sandra, involves the wife of a governor who fell in love with a soldier. When their affair was discovered and she refused to disconnect from her love interest, the governor placed both of them in a room within the fort and chained them to separate walls as punishment, while sarcastically respecting their wishes to remain together forever. That story was lore for a long time, until a hidden room was accidentally discovered. From my understanding, there was a cannon on top of the fort that actually fell in through the roof, and the barrel punctured that back. And then they sent the archaeologist out, they excavated the wall, actually found the bone and the chains in that room. St. Augustine continues to be an attraction for tourists, historians, and paranormal investigators. And while you would think a city 500 years in the making would have had time to turn up all of its mysteries and surprises, you would be wrong. Dowsing rods, EMF meters, and spirit boxes are all tools of the trade in Sandra's world. Paranormal investigators use these tools to communicate with those in the afterlife and to learn as much as possible about those that were here before us. But sometimes, the most simple proof of something else being nearby comes from man's best friend, in Sandra's experience. I think animals are more susceptible to seeing things and, and hearing things than we are. I see it with the animals all the time. And you'll get dogs that are downtown that people will be walking their dogs and they'll go through the city gates and they'll kind of, kind of switch around and look and they're like, you know, like they're reacting to something. Sandra lives about four miles from the area where she conducts tours nightly. It's an area away from the tourism, the attractions, and the stories of the city's haunted history. It's a job she enjoys, but one she likes to leave at the historic downtown gates of St. Augustine. However, that doesn't always mean the spirits she encounters are done with her. After living in her home for a year, Sandra is convinced that something, or someone, still lurks in its hallways and rooms, and it's not just her animals who have seen something strange. I actually have a three-pound little dog, and the other night I was sitting at the house and I was in my living room, and the bedroom is like right off the living room, and the dog was sitting in my lap and she was growling at the bedroom door, and I was like, what are you growling at? So I couldn't figure it out, and then I said, okay, well, I'm going to put him to bed. So I went and put him in the crates and I went and sat back down in the living room. And there was a shadow figure that actually walked through my kitchen and blocked out my stove light. 
Sometimes I wonder if Elizabeth followed me home because her and I, I communicate so much. But even if it's if it's something like her or whatever it is, I don't communicate with it. I just kind of ignore it because of the fact that if it is negative, I don't want to know for one. <laughs> and for two, if it is negative, the more you feed into it, the worse it's going to be. Thank you to Sandra Barber for sharing her stories and experiences. To take her tour, visit a Ghostly Counter Ghost Tours online. To learn more about her team of paranormal investigators, email ancientcityparanormal22 at gmail.com. This episode of Phantom History was written, produced, and edited by me, Steve Blanchard. Music was provided by Purple Planet Music, Chad Couch, and Silverman Sound Studios. Hear the full interview by becoming a Patreon supporter at phantomhistory.com and follow the podcast on Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, and Twitter for even more bonus content. If you have an idea for an episode, or if you've had a paranormal experience you'd like to share, email me at podcast at phantomhistory.com. And as always, thanks for listening.